welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, well, it's a pretty important day here for Sunny and her show. She's here to honor Juneteenth. Not familiar about it? Well, in short, it's the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of ending of slavery in the United States. And Sunny's going to delve into some information and some knowledge in what Juneteenth is all about. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And welcome, everyone. Good morning. It's Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy McMillan. And we're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW in Seattle and 103.3 KPCA in Petaluma, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with joy, peace, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives. Those are found at 1150kknw.com. You can also find the show on iTunes and Podcast One. Um, so for today's show, if you follow me on Facebook or you follow the Sunny in Seattle Radio Facebook page, you would have seen that today um, we were going to be doing a simulcast of a Juneteenth event. And um, I, well, first of all, let me just say hi. Hi, Benny. Thanks oh, for being hi, with me as we've been <laughs> doing our last minute switcheroos. Yeah. So Benny and I ran into um, a little bit of a technical difficulty with being able to simulcast this event. So at the last minute, we were scrambling, like, how are we going to do this today? Because I think it's really important, um, being that it is Juneteenth, which we'll give a little bit more information about here in a moment. But um, again, this is one of those days where my voice is not the one that needs to be heard or amplified at this time. Um, so um, we want to do our best, since we are not going to be simulcasting the event, to do something that will honor Juneteenth today um, and send out into the airwaves our, um, our uh, I guess, our thoughts and our celebration and our honoring of this very important holiday in the black community. Um, so just a little bit of um, housekeeping here. So the event that we had hoped to simulcast today is called Juneteenth Freedom, Justice, Democracy. It's an event hosted by six leading African-American museums and historical institutions who join forces to basically launch a digital commemoration of Juneteenth, which, of course, is the day that the Emancipation Procla Proclamation was officially enforced, uh, ending enslavement of African-Americans. Um, if you want to watch this video, and it's, they've got events going on all day today on this particular platform, um, just go to, um, it's blackfreedom.org, but it's spelled B-L-K freedom.org. That's blkfreedom.org. So that's the website to go to if you want to watch or listen to the video that um, we had hoped to share with you today. And again, as I mentioned, those events start not only right now at 9 a.m. Pacific, but they've got them, I believe, another uh, round at noon and then another one this evening at 6 p.m. So um, I invite you to turn your radio off now and go to that website and be able to participate. If that's not something that's available to you and you want to stick with us for the show today. Um, what we're going to do, um, this was something that I'd actually debated doing, um, and I did have also a guest that I had hoped to bring on today, and when that fell through, that's when we were going to simulcast that event. But the guest um, that we hopefully will be bringing on in a future segment um, will, uh, he has started something called the Just Listening Project. 
Um, and uh, you can Google that, uh, find it on YouTube, and you can find out more about the Just Listening Project that is just beginning. So hopefully we'll get to, to talk to that creator um, at some point in the future. Um, so what we will actually be doing today is um, a little bit of listening and listening in the form of me reading or sharing an article with you that I read last weekend for the first time. Um, and I think it's particularly important. It's relevant. It's actually from June 14th from The Atlantic. Um, and the author is ta Coates, who um, I actually just read last week his memoir um, or this, this it's a book written uh, in the form of a letter to his, his teenage son. And... <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and I read the memoir, uh, between the world and me, and that really got me on a hunt to find more that ta Coates had done. And so I came across this article and it's a long read. So if you're someone who doesn't normally like to read print articles, you like to listen to things, then today's show will be for you to be able to hear this article. Um, it's a long one and we probably won't finish it throughout the show or by the end of the hour. But I still think it's important, and wherever we leave off, you can, of course, um, find it. I think there is an audio version available at The Atlantic, um, as well as the print version. But I want to just give, before I dive into that article, I want to um, share with you a little bit of brief history about Juneteenth. Um, I grew up in Texas, and I do not recall any of this being shared in my Texas history classes, um, my social studies classes that I took. Um, and I think if, if I didn't learn about it, being that this happened in the state where I was from, then perhaps not everybody has heard about it. And I know there's a lot of good information, thank goodness, circulating, um, correct historical um, documentation and sharing of what actually happened. So if you're on social media, you probably have heard some of this before. But for those who haven't, um, this is for you so you can know a little bit more about this because to me, to frame this in a broader perspective, um, the this show is about mind, body, spirit, wellness. It's about aligning with your soul and living from that place. It's about the intersection of science and spirituality. It's about um, helping us all along on the soul's evolution. And I don't think we came here to remain stagnant. Um, Carol Dweck um, has written a fantastic book that I think has circulated quite a bit. She's done a lot more than just write this book, but she talks, uh, the book is called Mindset. Um, the New Psychology of Success. And in it, she talks about a fixed versus a growth mindset. And there are so many reasons why a growth mindset benefits us, but particularly as it relates to racial justice and anti-racism, um, I think it's important to have an open, vulnerable, curious approach to what may be new information for many of us. And I will say that from where I sit, when I am beginning to dive into this, I hit points of resistance or defensiveness or but, 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 and you know what, that I don't feel like this is the time for that. Um, so I encourage you, uh, to be open, curious, vulnerable, and be open to having a growth mindset because from a soul's perspective, I believe we are here for growth and doing this work of evolution of consciousness throughout human time um, while we're on this planet is incredibly important. And so what is happening right now, this transformation, this awakening, um, as it relates particularly to racial justice is very important. I don't think any of us are on this planet at this moment by accident. So this may be a time to learn and to grow together. So a um, little bit about Juneteenth and then we'll dive into this article. 
So as Benny mentioned in the intro, it's the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. So what happened on June 19th in 1865, where the Union soldiers, led by Major General Gordon Granger, landed at Galveston, Texas, with news that the war had ended and the enslaved were now free. This was a full two and a half years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which had become official January 1st in 1863. Um, and it, it said that the Emancipation Proclamation had little impact on Texans um, due to the minimal number of Union troops there to enforce this new executive order. Um, how, and there are various stories I've read as to why that may have happened. Um, and some of the ones that I think are the most, um, I think that, that I ran across the most often were that Texas was farther from the Union than any other state. And when slavery um, was abolished in certain southern states, a lot of those slave owners fled to Texas with the slaves so that they continue to use slave labor. Um, and there was even talk, you know, cotton was at that time, I think, the biggest industry in the United States besides the money that was involved in holding slaves. And there was the desire to get that one last cotton harvest out before um, so that we had our, you know, gross national product. And um, so there are various reasons why that news may not have reached uh, Texas sooner. But in any event, it did June 19th, 1865. And um, at that time, the surrender of General Lee in April of 1865 and the arrival of General Granger's regiment forces were finally strong enough to influence and overcome resistance. I also want to make a note here that while uh, enslavement and indentured servitude or slavery was abolished at that time, enslavement and indentured servitude continued all the way until 1940, 1940, um, thanks to a loophole in the 13th Amendment and black codes and Jim Crow laws. And if you aren't aware of what those words mean, Google them. Um, this is the time, if you hear something you don't understand or don't know about, go Google it. What were the black codes? What were Jim Crow laws? And so the 13th Amendment, this loophole, um, 13th Amendment said that, that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So basically, there was this loophole that you could enslave someone as punishment for a crime. And that's this, this um, institution of peonage or convicts for labor. Um, this is one example of systemic racism. Um, if you are not familiar, we use, I've thrown that term around quite a bit here on the show, systemic and institutionalized racism. This is one of the ways that systemic racism was put in place. And these black codes um, were basically these laws, you know, you can't preach without a permit from the police or you can't be unemployed. Or there was one, I think it was in South Carolina that allowed children to be taken from their parents if you were um, to be found guilty uh, in violation of any of these black codes and they could stay in servitude to someone else, a, a quote, apprenticeship until they were 18 or 21. Um, so these were ways that that systemic racism found its roots to um, to stay around um, all the way up. And of course, even past 1940 and many other ways, that's just one of the ways. So basically, um, you know, July 4th, 1776 is American Independence Day, but not all were free at that time. 
Um, so I am of the opinion, um, as are, I believe, many, and I like the trend that we're seeing now, that Juneteenth should absolutely be a national, federally recognized holiday. Until all were free, none were free. Um, and the black community, of course, lived that in a way that none of us can fully understand unless you were in or are in their shoes. So on to this article. Um, this is another, I think, um, example of some of the ways that systemic racism and institutionalized racism found its um, footing in our country following um, the abolition of slavery. Um, so this article, as I mentioned, is written by Tanahasi Coates. Um, his name, at least for me, is spelled um, different phonetically um, than it sounds. So I'm just going to read how to spell his name so that if you want to Google him, you can. Um, it is ta dash. N-E-H-I-S-I. -I. That's T-A-N-E-H-I-S-I. -I. Ta-Nehisi Coates. He's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Between the World and Me, and winner of the 2015 National Book Award for Nonfiction. He's an American author and journalist. Um, Coates gained a wide readership during his time as a national correspondent at The Atlantic, where he wrote about cultural, social, and political issues, particularly regarding African Americans and white supremacy. This particular article I'm going to share with you today, as I mentioned, is from the June 2014 edition of The Atlantic. Um, it is called The Case for Reparations. Um, and the subtitle or the little byline there or the little um, blurb at the beginning of the article, 250 years of slavery, 90 years of Jim Crow, 60 years of separate but equal, 35 years of racist housing policy. Until we reckon with our compounding moral debts, America will never be whole. So if reparations is a word that triggers you, you have a little bit of defensiveness, you don't really know what it means, how would it be implemented, um, instead of turning the radio off right now or not looking this article up, I invite you, get curious with me. Let's just listen, learn, and grow together. Because as I said on First Friday, um, one of my favorite quotes from Maya Angelou is basically that when we know better, we do better. I'm committed to knowing better. I'm committed to doing better. And the only way that we can do that is with a growth mindset. Um, and to me, that is part of growing emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. So here we go. Um, this, this article starts with two um, particular quotes. One is from the Bible in Deuteronomy. Um, and it's all about uh, reimbursing Hebrew slaves and giving them reparations once you free them. Um, there's another quote here from John Locke. Um, and so I invite you to check these out. I'm not going to read those so we dive right into the article, but um, I think they're relevant to the, the total picture of what um, Coates is talking about here. So part one, so that's just one of my losses. Clyde Ross was born in 1923, the seventh of 13 children, near Clarksdale, Mississippi, the home of the Blues. Ross's parents owned and farmed a 40-acre tract of land flushed with cows, hogs, and mules. Ross's mother would drive to Clarksdale to do her shopping in a horse and buggy, in which she invested all the pride want my place in a Cadillac. The family owned another horse with a red coat, which they gave to Clyde. The Ross family wanted little wanted for little, save that which all black families in the Deep South then desperately desired, the protection of the law. In the 1920s, Jim Crow Mississippi was, in all facets of society, a kleptocracy. 
the majority of the people in the state were perpetually robbed of the vote, a hijacking engineered through the trickery of the poll tax and the muscle of the lynch mob. Between 1882 and 1968, more black people were lynched in Mississippi than any other state. And this is a quote from um, Clyde. You know, and I know, or I'm sorry, this is not a quote from him. Let me back up. So between 1882 and 1968, more black people were lynched in Mississippi than any other state. This is now a quote from Theodore Bilbo, a Mississippi senator and proud Klansman. And he writes or said, you and I know what's the best way to keep the N-word from voting. You do it the night before the election. The state's regimen partnered robbery of the franchise with robbery of the purse. Many of Mississippi's black farmers lived in debt peonage under the sway of cotton kings who were at once their landlords, their employers, and their primary merchants. Tools and necessities were advanced against the return on the crop, which was determined by the employer. When farmers were deemed to be in debt, and they often were, the negative balance was then carried over to the next season. A man or woman who protested this arrangement did so at the risk of grave injury or death, and refusing to work meant arrest under vagrancy laws and forced labor under the state's penal system, those black codes we were talking about earlier in the intro. Well into the 20th century, black people spoke of their flight from Mississippi in much the same manner as their renegades ancestors had. In her 2010 book, The Warmth of Other Sons, Isabel Wilkerson tells the story of Eddie Irvin, a spinach picker who fled Mississippi in 1963 after being made to work at gunpoint. We didn't talk about it or tell nobody, Irvin said. You had to sneak away. So when Clyde Ross was still a child, Mississippi authorities claimed his father owed 3000 in back taxes. The elder Ross could not read. He did not have a lawyer. He did not know anyone at the local courthouse. He could not expect the police to be impartial. Effectively, the Ross family had no way to contest the claim and no protection under the law. The authorities seized the land. They seized the buggy. They took the cows, hogs, and mules. And so for the upkeep of separate but equal, the entire Ross family was reduced to sharecropping. This was hardly unusual. In 2001, the Associated Press published a three-part investigation into the theft of Black-owned land stretching back to the antebellum period. The series documented some 406 victims and 24,000 acres of land valued at tens of millions of dollars. The land was taken through means ranging from legal chicanery to terrorism. Some of the land taken from Black families has become a country club in Virginia, the AP reported, as well as oil fields in Mississippi and a baseball spring training facility in Florida. Going back to Clyde Ross, he was a smart child. His teacher thought he should attend a more challenging school. There was very little support for educating black people in Mississippi, but Julius Rosenwald, a part owner of Sears Roebuck, had begun an ambitious effort to build schools for black children throughout the South. Ross's teacher believed he should attend the local Rosenwald school. It was too far for Ross to walk to get back in time to work in the fields. Local white children had a school bus, but Clyde did not, and thus lost the chance to better his education. Then when Ross was 10 years old, a group of white men demanded his only childhood possession, the horse with the red coat. You can't have this horse. We want it, one of the white men said. They gave Ross's father $17. Clyde said, I did everything for that horse, for that horse, everything. And then they took him, put him on the racetrack. I never did know what happened to him after that, but I know they didn't bring him back. So that's just one of my losses. And the losses mounted. As sharecroppers, the Ross family saw their wages treated as the landlord's slush fund. Landowners were supposed to split the profits from the cotton fields with sharecroppers, 
but bales would often disappear during the count or the split might be altered on a whim. If cotton was selling for 50 cents a pound, the Ross family might get 15 cents or only five. One year, Ross's mother promised to buy him a $7 suit for a summer program at their church. She ordered the suit by mail. But that year, Ross's family was paid only five cents a pound for cotton. The mailman arrived with the suit. The Rosses could not pay. The suit was sent back. Clyde Ross did not go to the church program. It was in these early years that Ross began to understand himself as an American. He did not live under the blind decree of justice, but under the heel of a regime that elevated armed robbery, robbery to a governing principle. He thought about fighting. Just be quiet, his father told him, because they'll come and kill us all. Clyde Ross grew. He was drafted into the army. The draft officials offered him an exemption if he stayed home and worked. He preferred to take his chances with war. He was stationed in California. He found that he could go into stores without being bothered. He could walk the streets without being harassed. He could go into a restaurant and receive service. Ross was shipped off to Guam. He fought in World War II to save the world from tyranny. But when he returned to Clarksdale, he found that tyranny had followed him home. This was 1947, eight years before Mississippi lynched in the till and tossed his broken body into the Tallahatchie River. The Great Migration, a mass exodus of six million African-Americans that spanned most of the 20th century, was now in its second wave. The black pilgrims did not journey north simply seeking better wages and work or bright lights and big adventures. They were fleeing the acquisitive warlords of the South. They were seeking the protection of the law. Clyde Ross was among them. He came to Chicago in 1947 and took a job as a taster at Campbell's Soup. He made a stable wage. He married. He had children. His paycheck was his own. No Klansmen stripped him of the vote. When he walked down the street, he did not have to move because a white man was walking past. He did not have to take off his hat or avert his gaze. His journey from peonage to full citizenship seemed near complete. Only one item was missing, a home, that final badge of entry into the sacred order of the American middle class of the Eisenhower years. In 1961, Ross and his wife bought a house in North Lawndale, a bustling community on Chicago's west side. North Lawndale had long been a predominantly Jewish neighborhood, but a handful of middle-class African-Americans had lived there starting in the 40s. The community was anchored by the sprawling Sears Roebuck Sears headquarters. North Lawndale's Jewish People's Institute actively encouraged blacks to move into the neighborhood, seeking to make it a pilot community for interracial living. In the battle for integration then being fought around the country, North Lawndale seemed to offer promising terrain. But out in the tall grass, highwaymen, nefarious as any Clarksdale kleptocrat, were lying in wait. And we're about to learn a little bit more here as the article goes on about another um, um, piece of systemic racism that has to do with housing and land ownership and uh, loans and the federal housing program. Um, and for those who may be tuning in now, um, I am reading from a piece from The Atlantic by ta Coates called The Case for Reparations. Um, and we are now following uh, an individual, Clyde Ross, in his journey from Mississippi up to Chicago to make a home or a life and hopefully a home for his family. So three months after Clyde Ross moved into his house, the boiler blew out. This would normally be a homeowner's responsibility, but in fact, Ross was not really a homeowner. His payments were made to the seller, not the bank, and Ross had not signed a normal mortgage. He'd bought, quote, on contract. 
a predatory agreement that combined all the responsibilities of home ownership with all the disadvantages of renting while offering the benefits of neither. Ross had bought his house for $27,000. The seller, not the previous own owner, but a new kind of middleman had bought it for only 12,000 six months before selling it to Ross. In a contract sale, the seller kept the deed until the contract was paid in full. And unlike with a normal mortgage, Ross would acquire no equity in the meantime. If he missed a single payment, he would immediately forfeit his $1,000 down payment, all his monthly payments and the property itself. And if you do the math on this, we're talking, you know, $27,000 in uh, the 1960s, um, $12,000, $1,000. Those were big numbers back then. The men who peddled contracts in North Lawndale would sell homes at inflated prices and then evict families who could not pay, taking their down payment and their monthly installments as profit. They'd bring in another black family, rinse and repeat. He loads them up with payments they can't meet, an office secretary told the Chicago Daily News of her boss, the speculator Lou Fashanis, in 1963. Then he takes the property away from them. He sold some of the buildings three or four times. Ross had tried to get a legitimate mortgage in another neighborhood, but was told by a loan officer that there was no financing available. The truth was that there was no financing at all for people like Clyde Ross. From the 1930s to the 1960s, black people across the country were largely cut out of the legitimate home mortgage market through means both legal and extra legal. Chicago whites employed every measure from, quote, restrictive covenants to bombings to keep their neighborhoods segregated. Their efforts were buttressed by the federal government. In 1934, Congress created the Federal Housing Administration, or the FHA. The FHA insured private mortgages, causing a drop in interest rates and a decline in the size of the down payment required to buy a house, which is probably why many of us, this is me, Sunny, just speaking, why many of us um, who are white and had grandparents who were able to get a loan many moons ago at a low interest rate, and now there has been a house passed down generation to generation, we're able to do this largely based on the creation of the Federal Housing Administration. So um, the, as I mentioned, the FHA insured private mortgages, causing a drop in interest rates and a decline in the size of the down payment required to buy a house. But an insured mortgage was not a possibility for Clyde Ross. The FHA had adopted a system of maps that rated neighborhoods according to their perceived stability. On the maps, green areas rated an A indicated in demand. And those were in demand neighborhoods that, as one appraiser put it, lacked a single foreigner or Negro. These neighborhoods were considered excellent prospects for insurance. Neighborhoods where black people lived were rated D and were usually ineligible for FHA backing. They were colored in red. And so if you've ever heard about redlining, if you're not familiar with the term redlining, Google it. This is what we're talking about here. So those neighborhoods that were rated D, primarily neighborhoods where black people lived, were colored in red. Neither the percentage of black people living there nor their social class mattered. Black people were viewed as a contagion. Redlining went beyond FHA-backed loans and spread to the entire mortgage industry, which was already rife with racism, excluding black people from most legitimate means of obtaining a mortgage. A government offering such bounty to builders and lenders could have required compliance with a non-discrimination policy, writes Charles Abrams, the urban studies expert who helped create the New York City Housing Authority. Uh, he said it in 1955. But instead, the FHA adopted a racial policy that could well have been called from the Nuremberg Laws. 
The devastating effects are cogently outlined by Melvin L. Oliver and Thomas M. Shapiro in their 1995 book, Black Wealth, White Wealth. Locked out of the greatest mass-based opportunity for wealth accumulation in American history, African Americans who desired and were able to afford home ownership found themselves consigned to central city communities where their investments were affected by the self-fulfilling prophecies of the FHA appraisers. In In other words, cut off from sources of new investment, their homes and communities deteriorated and lost value in comparison to those homes and communities that the FHA appraisers deemed desirable. In Chicago and across the country, whites looking to achieve the American dream could rely on a a legitimate credit system backed by the government. Blacks were herded into the sights of unscrupulous lenders who took them for money and for sport. It was like people who like to go out and shoot lions in Africa. It was the same thrill, a housing attorney told the historian Beryl Satter in her 2009 book, Family Properties, the thrill of the chase and the kill. And the kill was profitable. At the time of his death, Lou Fashanis, that gentleman, or I don't mean not going to call him a gentleman, that man who was doing predatory lending for African-American homeowners in Chicago in that North Lawndale community. So this is Lou Fashanis. At the time of his death, he owned more than 600 properties, many of them in North Lawndale, and his estimated worth was $3 million dollars. He'd made much of this money by exploiting the frustrated hopes of black migrants like Clyde Ross. During this period, according to one estimate, 85% of all black home buyers who bought in Chicago bought on contract. If anybody who is well established in this business does not earn $100,000 a year, a contract seller told the Saturday Evening Post in 1962, he is loafing. And contract sellers became rich. North Lawndale became a ghetto. Clyde Ross still lives there. He still owns his home. He is 91, and the emblems of survival are all around him. Awards for his service in his community, pictures of his children in cap and gown. But when I asked him about his home in North Lawndale, I heard only anarchy. Clyde said, we were ashamed. We didn't want anyone to know that we were that ignorant. Ross was sitting at his dining room table when he shared this with ta Coates. His glasses were as thick as his Clarksdale drawl. I'd come out of Mississippi where there was one mess and I came up here and I got into another mess. So how dumb was I? I didn't want anyone to know how dumb I was. When I found myself caught up in it, I said, how? I just left this mess. I just left no laws and no regard. And then I come up here and get sheeted wide open. I would probably want to do some harm to some people, you know, if I had been a violent person like some of us. I thought, man, I got caught up in this stuff. I can't even take care of my kids. I didn't have enough for my kids. You could fall through the cracks easy fighting these white people and no law. But fight Clyde Ross did. And in 1968, he joined the newly formed Contract Buyers League, a collection of black homeowners in Chicago's South and West Sides, all of whom had been locked into the same system of predation. There was Howell Collins, whose contract called for him to pay $25,000 for a house that a speculator had bought for $14,000. There was Ruth Wells, who'd managed to pay out half her contract expecting a mortgage only to suddenly see an insurance bill materialize out of thin air, a requirement the seller had added without Wells' knowledge. Contract sellers used every tool at their disposal to pilfer from their clients. They scared white residents into selling low. They lied about properties' compliance with building codes, then left the buyer responsible when city inspectors arrived. They presented themselves as real estate brokers when, in fact, they were the owners. They guided their clients to lawyers who were in on the scheme. And the Contract Buyers League fought back. 
members who would eventually number more than 500 went out to the posh suburbs where the speculators lived and embarrassed them by knocking on the neighbors' doors and informing them of the details of the contract lending trade. They refused to pay their installments, instead holding monthly payments in an escrow account. They then brought a suit against the contract sellers, accusing them of buying properties and reselling in such a manner to reap from members of the Negro race large and unjust profits. In return for the deprivations of their rights and privileges under the 13th and 14th Amendments, the League demanded prayers for relief, payback of all monies paid on contracts and all monies paid for structural improvement of the properties at 6% interest minus a fair, non-discriminatory rental price for time of occupation. Moreover, the League asked the court to adjudge that the defendants had acted willfully and maliciously and that malice is the gist of this action. Ross and the Contract Buyers League were no longer appealing to the government simply for equality. They were no longer fleeing in hopes of a better deal elsewhere. They were charging society with a crime against their community. They wanted the crime publicly ruled as such. They wanted the crime's executors declared to be offensive to society. And they wanted restitution for the great injury brought upon them by said offenders. In 1968, Clyde Ross and the Contract Buyers League were no longer simply seeking the protection of the law, they were seeking reparations. Part two, so if you're joining us late, I'm reading from Ta-Nehisi Coates' June 2014 article in The Atlantic, The Case for Reparations. So this is part two, a difference of kind, not degree. According to the most recent statistics, North Lawndale is now on the wrong end of virtually every socioeconomic indicator. In 1930, its population was 112,000. Today, it's 36,000. The halcyon talk of interracial living is dead. The neighborhood is 92% black. Its homicide rate is 45 per 100,000, triple the rate of the city as a whole. Infant mortality is at 14 per, per 1,000, which is more than twice the national average. 43% of the people in North Lawndale live below the poverty line, double Chicago's overall rate. 45% of all households are on food stamps, nearly three times the rate of the city at large. Sears Roebuck left the neighborhood in 1987, taking 1,800 jobs with it. Kids in North Lawndale need not be confused about their prospects. Cook County's Juvenile Temporary Detention Center sits directly adjacent to the neighborhood. North Lawndale is an extreme portrait of the trends that ail Black Chicago. Such is the magnitude of these ailments that it can be said that Blacks and Whites do not inhabit the same city. The average per capita income of Chicago's white neighborhoods is almost three times that of its black neighborhoods. When the Harvard sociologist Robert Sanson examined incarceration rates in Chicago in his 2012 book, Great American City, he found that a black neighborhood with one of the highest incarceration rates, West Garfield Park, had a rate more than 40 times as high as the, as high as the white neighborhood with the highest rate, which is clearing. This is a staggering differential, even for community-level comparisons, Samson writes, a difference of kind, not degree. In other words, Chicago's impoverished Black neighborhoods characterized by high unemployment and households headed by single parents are not simply poor, they are ecologically distinct. This is not simply the same thing as low economic status, writes Samson. In this pattern, Chicago is not alone. The lives of black Americans are better than they were half a century ago. The humiliation of whites only signs are gone. Rates of black poverty have decreased. Black teen pregnancy rates are at record lows. And the gap between black and white teen pregnancy rates has shrunk significantly. 
But such progress rests on a shaky foundation and the fault lines are everywhere. The income gap between black and white households is roughly the same today as it was in 1970. Patrick Sharkey, a sociologist at New York University, studied children born from 1955 through 1970 and found that 4% of whites and 62% of blacks across America had been raised in poor neighborhoods. A generation later, the same study showed virtually nothing had changed. And whereas whites born into affluent neighborhoods tended to remain in affluent neighborhoods, blacks tended to fall out of them. This is not surprising. Black families, regardless of income, are significantly less wealthy than white families. The Pew Research Center estimates that white households are worth roughly 20 times as much as black households, and that whereas only 15% of whites have zero or negative wealth, more than a third of blacks do. Effectively, the black family in America is working without a safety net. When financial calamity strikes, a medical emergency, divorce, or job loss, the fall is precipitous. And just as black families of all incomes remain handicapped by a lack of wealth, so too do they remain handicapped by their restricted choice of neighborhood. Black people with upper middle class incomes do not generally live in upper middle class neighborhoods. Sharkey's research shows that black families making $100,000 typically live in the kinds of neighborhoods inhabited by white families making $30,000. Blacks and whites inhabit such different neighborhoods, Sharkey writes, that it is not possible to compare the economic outcomes of black and white children. The implications are chilling. As a rule, poor black people do not work their way out of the ghetto and those who do often face the horror of watching their children and grandchildren tumble back. Even seeming evidence of progress withers under harsh light. In 2012, the Manhattan Institute cheerily noted that segregation had declined since the 1960s, and yet African-Americans still remain by far the most segregated ethnic group in the country. With segregation, with the isolation of the injured and the robbed, comes the concentration of disadvantage. An unsegregated America might see poverty and all its effects spread across the country with no particular bias towards skin color. Instead, the concentration of poverty has been paired with a concentration of melanin. This, the resulting conflagration has been devastating. One thread of thinking in the African-American community holds that these depressing numbers partially stem from cultural pathologies that can be altered through individual grit and exceptionally good behavior. In 2011, Philadelphia Mayor Michael Nutter, responding to violence among young black males, put the blame on the family. He said, too many men making too many babies they don't want to take care of, and then we end up dealing with your children. Nutter turned to those presumably father those babies and said, pull your pants up and buy a belt because no one wants to see your underwear or the crack of your butt. The thread is as old as black politics itself. It is also wrong. The kind of trenchant racism to which black people have persistently been subjected can never be defeated by making its victims more respectable. The essence of American racism is disrespect. And in the wake of the grim numbers, we see the grim inheritance. The Contract Buyers League suit brought by Clyde Ross and his allies took direct aim at this inheritance. The suit was rooted in Chicago's long history of segregation, which had created two housing markets, one legitimate and backed by the government, the other lawless and patrolled by predators. The suit dragged on until 1976 when the league lost a jury trial. Securing the equal protection of the law proved hard. Securing reparations proved impossible. If there were any doubts about the mood of the jury, the foreman removed them by saying when asked about the verdict that he hoped it would help end the whole Earl, the whole, sorry, this makes me so emotional. Uh, 
When asked about the verdict, the jury foreman said he hoped it would end the mess Earl Warren made with Brown v. Board of Education and all that nonsense. And again, if you're joining us late, I'm reading from an article by ta Coates in The Atlantic from June 2014. It's called The Case for Reparations. So going back to um, the case that was brought by the Contract Buyers League, the Supreme Court seemed to share that sentiment. The past, due, the past two decades have witnessed a rollback of the progressive legislation of the 1960s. Liberals have found themselves on the defensive. In 2008, when Barack Obama was a candidate for president, he was asked whether his daughters, Malia and Sasha, should benefit from affirmative action. He answered in the negative. The exchange rested upon an enormous comparison of the average American white family and the exceptional first family. In the contrast of upward mobility, Barack and Michelle Obama have won, but they've won by being twice as good and enduring twice as much. Malia and Sasha Obama enjoy privileges beyond the average white child's dreams, but that comparison is incomplete. The more telling question is how they compare with Jenna and Barbara Bush, the products of many generations of privilege, not just one. Whatever the Obama children achieve, it will be evidence of their family's singular perseverance, not of broad equality. Part three of the article, we inherit our ample patrimony. In 1783, the freed woman Belinda Royal petitioned the Commonwealth of Massachusetts for reparations. Belinda had been born in modern-day Ghana. She was kidnapped as a child and sold into slavery. She endured the Middle Passage and 50 years of enslavement at the hands of Isaac Royal and his son. But the junior royal, a British loyalist, fled the country during the Revolution. Belinda, now free after half a century of labor, beseeched the nascent Massachusetts legislature. She said, the face of your petitioner is now marked with the furrows of time and her frame bending under the oppression of years, while she, by the laws of the land, is denied the employment of one morsel of that immense wealth, a part whereof hath been accumulated by her own industry and the whole augmented by her servitude. Wherefore, casting herself at your feet, if your honors, as to a body of men formed for the extirpation of vassalage, for the reward of virtue and the just return of honest industry, she prays that such allowance will be made her out of the estate of Colonel Royal, as will prevent her and her more infirm daughter from misery in the greatest extreme and scatter comfort over the short and downward path of their lives. Belinda Royal was granted a pension of 15 pounds and 12 shillings to be paid out of the estate of Isaac Royal, one of the earliest successful attempts to petition for reparations. At the time, black people in America had endured more than 150 years of enslavement and the, and the idea that they might be owed something in return was, if not the national consensus, at least not outrageous. A heavy account lies against us as a civil society for oppressions committed against people who did not injure us, wrote the Quaker John Woolman in 1769, and that if the particular case of many individuals were fairly stated, it would appear that there was considerable due to them. As the historian Roy E. Finkenbein has documented, at the dawn of this country, black reparations were actively considered and often affected. Quakers in New York, New England and Baltimore went so far as to make membership contingent upon compensating one's former slaves. In 1782, the Quaker Robert Pleasance emancipated his 78 slaves, granted them 350 acres, and later built a school on their property and provided for their education. 
The doing of this justice to the injured Africans, wrote Pleasance, would be an acceptable offering to him who rules in the kingdom of men. Edward Coles, a protege of Thomas Jefferson, who became a slaveholder through inheritance, took many of his slaves north and granted them a plot of land in Illinois. John Randolph, a cousin of Jefferson's, willed that all his slaves be emancipated upon his death, and that all those older than 40 be given 10 acres of land. I give and bequeath to all my slaves their freedom, Randolph wrote, heartily regretting that I have been the owner of one. In his book, Forever Free, Eric Foner recounts the story of a disgruntled planter reprimanding, reprimanding a freedman loafing on the job. I'm not going to read this because it involves foul language. <sighs> going on to the next paragraph, and again, I'm reading from The Case for Reparations by ta Coates in The Atlantic. In the 20th century, the cause of reparations was taken up by a diverse cast that included the Confederate veteran Walter, J Walter R. Vaughn, who believed that reparations would be a stimulus for the South. The black activist Callie House was also a part of this, as well as the black nationalist leaders like Queen Mother Audley Moore and the civil rights activist James Foreman. The movement coalesced in 1987, 87, that's not long ago, under an umbrella organization called the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. The NAACP endorsed reparations in 1993. Charles J. Ogletree Jr., a professor at Harvard Law School, has pursued reparations claims in court. But while the people advocating reparations have changed over time, the re response from the country has remained virtually the same. They have been taught to labor, the Chicago Tribune editorialized in 1891. They have been taught Christian civilization and to speak the noble English language instead of some African gibberish. The account is square with the ex-slaves. And again, that's from an editorial in the Chicago Tribune in 1891. ta Coates goes on to write, not exactly. Having been enslaved for 250 years, black people were not left to their own devices. They were terrorized. In the deep South, a second slavery ruled. In the North, legislatures, mayors, civic associations, Banks and citizens all colluded to pin black people into ghettos where they were overcrowded, overcharged, and undereducated. Businesses discriminated against them, awarding them the worst jobs and the worst wages. Police brutalized them in the streets. And the notion that black lives, black bodies, and black wealth were rightful targets remained deeply rooted in the broader society. Now we have half stepped away from our long centuries of despoilment, promising never again, but still we are haunted. This is one of my favorite quotes from the entire article. We are still haunted. It is as though we have run up a credit card bill and, having pledged to charge no more, remain befuddled that the balance does not disappear. The effects of that balance, interest accruing daily, are all around us. Broach the topic of reparations today and a barrage of questions inevitably follow. Who will be paid? How much will they be paid? Who will pay? But if the practicalities, not the justice of reparations, are the true sticking point, there has for some time been the beginnings of a solution. For the past 25 years, Congressman John Colliers Jr., who represents the Detroit area, has marked every session of Congress by introducing a bill calling for a congress a congressional study of slavery and its lingering effects, as well as recommendations for appropriate remedies. A country curious about how reparations might actually work has an easy solution in Conyers' bill, now called H.R. 40, the Commission to Study Reparation Proposals for African Americans Act. 
we would support this bill, submit the question to study, and then assess the possible solutions. But we are not interested. It's because it's black folks making the claim. Um, TAFA, and I, um, Nakechi TAFA, who helped found um, in COBRA says, people who talk about reparations are considered left lunatics. But all we are talking about is studying reparations. As John Conyers has said, we study everything. We study the water, the air. We can't even study this issue. This bill does not authorize one red cent to anyone. That H.R. 40 has never, under either Democrats or Republicans, made it to the House floor suggests our concerns are rooted not in the impracticality of reparations, but in something more existential. If we conclude that the conditions in North Lawndale and Black America are not inexplicable, but are instead precisely what you'd expect of a community that for centuries has lived in America's crosshairs, then what are we to make of the world's oldest democracy? One cannot escape the question by hand-waving at the past, disavowing the acts of one's ancestors, nor by citing a recent date of ancestral immigration. The last slaveholder has been dead for a long time. The last soldier to endure Valley Forge has been dead much longer. To proudly claim the veteran and disown the slaveholder is patriotism a la carte. A nation outlives its generations. We were not there when Washington crossed the Delaware, but Emanuel Gottlieb Lutz's rendering has meaning to us. We were not there when Woodrow Wilson took us into World War II, but we are still paying out the pensions. If Thomas Jefferson's genius matters, then so does his taking of Sally Hemings' body. If George Washington crossing the Delaware matters, so must his ruthless pursuit of the renegade Oni Judge. And that's a story I stopped to look up while reading this article. Oni Judge, O-N-E-Y, uh, was a slave of George Washington. Google her story. In 1909, President William Howard Taft told the country that intelligent white Southerners were ready to see blacks as useful members of the community. A week later, Joseph Gordon, a black man, was lynched outside Greenwood, Mississippi. The high point of the lynching era has passed, but the memories of those robbed of their lives still live on in the lingering effects. Indeed, in America, there is a strange and powerful belief that if you stab a black person 10 times, the bleeding stops and the healing begins the moment the assailant drops the knife. We believe white dominance to be a fact of the inert past, a delinquent debt that can be made to disappear if only we don't look. There has always been another way. It is in vain to allege that our ancestors brought them hither and not we, Yale President Timothy Dwight said in 1810. He went on to say, we inherit our ample patrimony with all its encumbrances and are bound to pay the debts of our ancestors this debt particularly we are bound to discharge, and when the righteous judge of the universe comes to reckon with his servants, he will rigidly exact the payment at our hands. To give them liberty and stop here is to entail upon them a curse. The article goes on, and we're going into part four now, the ills that slavery frees us from. And I know we don't have much time left in the show today, um, so I'll read for a little while longer. This article, we're not even halfway through with, and it is so well-researched um, and so articulate and eloquent in describing why this is not something that went away, that we can look away from just because it's not, um, just because of the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. Um, so yeah, I'll read a little bit more and then um, we'll wrap up. And I invite you to look at this article from The Atlantic, June 20, 2014, by Tanahasi Coates. 
um, America begins in black plunder and white democracy, two features that are not contradictory but complementary. The men who came together to found the independent United States dedicated to freedom and equality either held slaves or were willing to join hands with those who did. The historian Edmund S. Morgan wrote, none of them felt entirely comfortable about the fact, but neither did they feel responsible for it. Most of them had inherited both their slaves and their attachment to freedom from an earlier generation, and they knew the two were not unconnected. When enslaved Africans plundered of their bodies, plundered of their families, and plundered of their labor were brought to the colony of Virginia in 1619, they did not initially endure the naked racism that would engulf their progeny. Some of them were freed, some of them intermarried, still others escaped with the white indentured servants who had suffered as they had. Some even rebelled together, allying under Nathan, um, Nathaniel Bacon to torch Jamestown in 1676. 100 years later, the idea of slaves and poor whites joining forces would shock the senses. But in the early days of the English colonies, the two groups had much in common. English visitors to Virginia found that its masters abused their servants with intolerable oppression and hard usage. White servants were flogged, tricking into, tricked into serving beyond their contracts and traded in much the same manner as slaves. Hmm... I'll just read this last little part and then we'll wrap up. For the next 250 years, American law worked to reduce black people to a class of untouchables and raise all white men to the level of citizens. Hmm. Yeah, without going into great detail, I think it would not be appropriate um, since we have a couple minutes left to try to start this launch into a whole new paragraph here. All this to say, um, if you've joined us late in the program, um, we were unable to simulcast the uh, Juneteenth celebration that I had hoped to um, share with you all today for the show. Um, and so instead of doing that, I read from a particularly compelling article written by Tanahasi Coates, June 2014, in The Atlantic. Um, and it goes into, um, at the beginning of the show, you know, and talking about... Um, the years of peonage um, and um, the use of indentured or involuntary servitude um, as punishment for a crime. That's one place where systemic racism took hold. Another place is what Tanahasi Coates is writing about in this article about how um, black Americans were largely um, edged out of the housing market and have not been able to accumulate um, wealth and property in the same way that white people have. And so there's an interesting argument there for reparations, um, which I fully support. So I invite you to check it out. Um, and being that today is Juneteenth, I invite you to um, check out the celebration and the honoring that is happening at blackfreedom.org. That's blkfreedom.org, um, which is what I had originally hoped to share with you all. Or go out and learn a little something. Google some things that you don't know about learn some history that you didn't learn when you were in school. Um, and through doing that, just as Maya Angelou said, when we know better, we do better. So here is to doing better. And for those out there who are celebrating and honoring Juneteenth, I am with you there. Um, you have been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy. We'll see you next week. <laughs>